From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Foxfire is the bioluminescence created by some species of fungi present in decaying wood. It's a wonderfully evocative word selected by a teacher and students over 50 years ago to be the title for their new project to document life in the southern Appalachians. What started initially as a student project has lived on for decades and today is an open-air museum and outdoor village with over 20 historic log buildings and the Foxfire Archive, which consists of over 50 years of oral history, interviews, images, and video. With the light of the Foxfire marking our path, on this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Cami Ahrens, Assistant Curator for the Foxfire Museum, about the special work they're doing to preserve the past. Nick here, just a quick reminder that your support of this podcast makes a big difference. PreserveCast brings you stories from around the world about the people who are doing the work to preserve, interpret, and save our past, and we couldn't do that without your support. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes the future is richer when it understands the past. So please head over to PreserveCast.org and make a contribution today. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review on your podcast app. Now, let's get preserving. Cami Ahrens is a St. Louis area native who joined the Foxfire Museum in 2017 as their assistant curator and educational outreach coordinator. She's responsible for curating artifacts, developing exhibits, and managing educational programming along Foxfire's curator. She also produces their monthly podcast, It Still Lives. With a long-standing interest in history and material culture, Cami received a bachelor's in history from Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri, followed by a master's in historical archaeology from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Cami has represented Foxfire on NPR's The Splendid Table and in articles for the New York Times and Garden and Gun magazine. She's currently editing a volume on Appalachian women featuring 20 oral histories from Foxfire's vast archival collection, slated for publication in early 2022. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're very excited to have Cami Ahrens with us, who is uh, the Foxfire Museum's Assistant Curator and Educational Outreach Coordinator. We're going to be talking about all things at the museum. We're going to be talking about uh, the work that they do and also their long legacy of documenting life in the Southern Appalachians. Um, so it is such a pleasure to have you with us here today and to be able to talk about um, all the great work that you guys are doing there. Um, and I know you have your own podcast, which people can listen to, and we'll make sure to get a plug for that. But before we get started, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you, and where your passion for the past came from, and perhaps like what, what was your first job in the field? Well, thank you, Nick. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, so my interest in history started a long time ago when I was a little kid, and I have to trace it back to theater. When I was really young, I got really interested in historical costume. Um, and actually, after a lot of begging, my mother finally <laughs> allowed me to reenact at a local historic village, um, Daniel Boone's historic home outside of St. Charles, Missouri. And that was really the first place that I encountered this idea of like hands-on history and what history could look like outside of a textbook. Um, so I got to learn a lot about how historic clothing was created and got to participate in those processes. So that really kind of directed my interest as I grew up and I started looking more into studying material culture. Um, and this is actually my first full-time job in the field, but I started with internships and my very first internship 
was at the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis, Missouri, where I worked um, under the senior curator of textiles. So that was a really formative experience and um, really directed a lot of my studies and career interests. It's pretty exciting. And, you know, like we hear from a lot of people, it's always like a parent who has um, either the willingness or the interest in getting their kid engaged and excited (laughs) about things. Um, So uh, good parents, I guess, in, in some cases are to blame for all of this. Um, yeah, so, we were definitely cultural tourists growing up. Um, so they definitely helped support my interests. Yeah. And a good area for that too. I feel like there's, I mean, any area is good for that, but particularly Missouri and where you grew up in St. Louis yeah. and there's just so much rich history there. Um, with the Oh my gosh. Yeah. You can't walk anywhere without stepping into history, whether it's, you know, ancient or modern. So let's jump into Foxfire here for a second, because it's funny. I I am like a huge Foxfire nerd. I love Foxfire. (laughs) um, And I was recently on this like all day Zoom thing and there was um, breaks in between. And I was like, we were just all talking about like what we're reading. And currently at that point, I was was rereading a Foxfire volume. And they were like everybody on the call who were all, you know, interested in preservation history. Like what's Foxfire? So I feel like it's, it's my duty as someone who loves it to, to really make sure everybody knows about this. It's such a fantastic piece of work. And it's great that you guys are carrying on the legacy. So for those who aren't familiar with it though, could you give us some background? Like how, and the books, in particularly the, the books, I suppose, which is how a lot of people at least first learn about this, how they came to be. Where did this all come about? Because it's it's a fascinating story, not only what you guys have documented, but how it all came to be. Yeah. So I always say there's no good elevator pitch for Foxfire. That's because we have such a long and rich history, as you said. So it started all the way back in 1966 in an English classroom here at um, Raven Gap Nacucci School, which is just up the road in Raven County, Georgia. And it was a very rural, small town at the time. And these kids were not interested at all in their English class. They didn't want to read Shakespeare. Um, Some of them ended up setting their teacher's podium on fire. Um, And the teacher got incredibly frustrated and decided that they needed a big change. So he suggested to them that they start a project that they would all be interested in. And he brought up the idea of a magazine. The kids were really interested in the magazine, and at first, we're just going to use it as a literary output. Um, So they were going to do poetry and prose. They included some art, but they also went and talked to their neighbors, who were elderly people, born in the 1880s, 1890s, and got some stories, folklore, tips, tricks from them about living in the mountains. Um, You know, most of these people, even in the 1960s, a lot of them were still living without running water. Most of them, the only electricity they had was a light bulb. Um, Most of them still cooked over wood stoves. And this was something that students were really separated from. So they went and were able to learn about these traditions and crafts and skills. And the more they learned, the more interested they became. So they published all of this in a magazine. Um, And I think within two weeks, they sold out of the first 600 copies. Um, It became a national seller. Um, And then within a couple of years, they were offered a book deal. Um, That was in the 1970s, and that led to the very first Foxfire book. Um, So in 1972, they published the first Foxfire book, which is the first of about 12 in the series anthology. And then we have several offshoots, um, other books that have been published on different topics that are called companion books. Um, But just from that first book alone, the students were able to make enough royalties that they could purchase 100 acres of land 
on Black Rock Mountain. So a 15-year-old kid signed the check for this piece of property that I'm at today. Um, and they decided that they wanted this property to become a place of learning for future students and for the community. So they started rescuing old buildings in the area, you know, cabins that were built in the 1820s, 1830s. These, again, high school students with adult supervision reconstructed these log cabins on site, including chinking. They made the shingles for them everything. And they started filling them with the artifacts that they were getting during these interviews with people in their community. So this originally became a learning center. And then in 2001, the center opened as a museum to the public. So that's where we are today and what we interpret today is the museum spaces. But we do still have an ongoing magazine program. So every year we have local high school students who come together and conduct oral history interviews. And then they publish two magazines every year that in um, collect those interviews into articles. So they're still actively documenting um, Appalachian culture and a lot of changes that are going on around us. Um, so we now have amassed over 2,000 oral histories. Um, we have a vast collection of historic photographs, um, just a really amazing collection in our archive as well as in our buildings. It really, like, you know, we've done, this is, I don't know, episode 142 three year, I'm uh, 144, I guess. So we've done a lot of these interviews and talked to a lot of really cool people and a lot of really cool programs and projects. But I feel like of all of them, like Foxfire has something in it for every aspect of the challenges of doing public history. And I think it's something everyone around the country should look at. And yes, not everyone around the country is documenting the Southern Appalachians and they're not using high school students to do it. But the relevance of the work and how you've done it over time and engaging youth and and having place and engagement with historic buildings. And I, I think that there's something profound in what Foxfire has done. And I just hope that... Um, you know, as, as we become a more interconnected world that people are really paying attention to what you guys are doing because it's, it's not, in and of itself, it's, it's important that you've documented the life that you have, but also just the program that you put together is incredible. And I, I don't think enough people know about it. So I've gushed enough about Foxfire. <laughs> Maybe, let me, let me ask you this too, for people listening who are like, but what is a Foxfire? Why, what is Foxfire? Yeah, that's a great question and something I didn't know until I moved here because um, I'm from the Midwest and we don't have this. Yeah, but we don't Fox have Fire, it in Maryland, I don't think. Yeah. Either. I've never seen it anyway. Foxfire is a bioluminescent fungus. So it's actually, I think there's like two or three different types of mushrooms that are in the Appalachian Mountains. And during the summer when it's wet and warm, they will feed on rotting wood. You can go out in the middle of the night and they will be glowing in the dark. Um, I have not seen it. I really want to see it. Sounds really cool. Um, but the name Foxfire comes from some folklore around these glowing mushrooms. So there was a lot of folklore that built up in the mountains from Cherokee legends, as well as the Scots-Irish who first settled here, um, about glowing lights at night in the dark in the mountains. And um, Foxfire, the, the folklore that we have is that a fox was chasing a rabbit and caught the rabbit and was trying to cook its rabbit over this glowing mushroom. And it stayed up all night and all night and all night watching it and the rabbit never cooked. Um, and so that's, that's the story I have heard behind the actual name Foxfire. But the students, when they were naming the magazine, came up with all kinds of different names and somebody suggested this and it stuck. 
and it's become a really beautiful symbol for what what we do here. Um, the idea that you know we're rooted in folklore, we're rooted in place, we're rooted in nature, um, but we also we still glow. You know, we're connected to this past and keeping it glowing and alive. Um, so I think it's a really awesome name. Yeah, it and is. I mean, cool it's, yeah, it's really cool and it's unique. I mean, a lot of times people name stuff and it's like the Southern Appalachian Documentation Project. Like that would not capture everyone's yeah. attention as much. And and it's sort of like preservation logos, you know, like a lot of times it's like, you know, the logo is the Corinthian column or, you know, the window. And like this is, you know, it's like it's trying to think outside of the box about what it is that you do and what you represent. So I think it's a really, a really, really kind of pretty thing. So let me ask you this. So you talked about how the kids that were doing this in the 70s, which are now adults or grown adults yeah. or retired people, <laughs> you know, um, they were documenting life and interviewing their, you know, their grandparents and stuff where you mentioned, you know, they maybe had no running water or they had one light bulb. And if you read these Foxfire books, I mean, and they're just so evocative. They're really cool. Um, but now we're so we're, we're very disconnected from that, right? Like most of us don't know somebody who grew up with one light bulb or who grew up, um, you know, uh, cooking over a wood stove like that is becoming less and less common. Do you find that it's harder to make this story relevant? And I guess maybe as an aside to that, are you trying to document like life in the Southern Appalachians in the 1970s now? Or <laughs> how does how does the how does the work continue, given that we're we're getting increasingly further and further, at least from that period of time that you guys are so connected to? Yeah, that's a good question and something we've kind of been asking ourselves over the past couple of years. And I think, you know, we kind of have two arms. Um, and the one is to interpret this historic life way. And I think it's very much still relevant. One thing that's really interesting to see is that during periods of recession, our book sales actually go up and our visitation or you know, now digital visitation has really increased. We got a an incredible response after the shutdown of people, you know, wanting to have more from the museum and learn more of the skills from the museum. I think, um, especially now as we're moving more towards a digital experience and, you know, our culture has become rapidly focused on material goods. I think people are actually increasingly interested in returning to this authentic and self-sufficient lifestyle. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because in, in the 70s and 80s, when the kids who grew up with lye soap and homemade quilts, they were embarrassed. They didn't want to be connected to these things. And Foxfire kind of empowered them to embrace their heritage. But now, you know, people don't want store-bought soap. They want homemade soap. They want to be able to provide for themselves um, because they see the value in these skills. And also, I think there's a lot of fulfillment in being able to create things for yourself um, and support support yourself without relying on a mass market. Um, and then the other side of that, I think, is our students have really started to shift the focus of their oral history projects. And we've had to provide them with a little bit of guidance, but they still have a lot of agency and choice um, in that. Um, so it, for a long time, it was these what we call personality articles. So people sitting down with grandma and grandpa and asking them about how things were. And now we're really shifting towards capturing 
you know, the changes that are happening right now in the moment. So we've had students do a lot of research on local businesses and how those businesses are shaping community. Um, our latest issue um, had a really great section with a couple of articles on the opioid crisis in mm, the area. Right. Um, and then our next issue will feature um, a series of articles on how COVID has impacted the region. Um, and I'm really proud of the students. I think they did really meaningful work this summer. Um, I know it was difficult for them to do interviews via Zoom, but I think they were able to capture some really powerful stories that will help shape our knowledge of the past in the future. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, you know, you guys are a small, scrappy organization, so you don't have huge capacity to like bring this to everyone. But it's like, I feel like there's so much relevance. And I hope people listening who work in organizations that have an interest in this kind of thing will take a look at Foxfire because I think what you're describing could be a project that kids in New York City do about their local heritage or how things are changing in their world and documenting that. And for kids who feel like, oh, well, the work that I do won't be that important, then you look at Foxfire and it's like, this thing has lived on, right? I mean, there's yeah. been a true legacy to that. And and it's funny, I think when you read, when you first read it, unless, like, I think a lot of people, like the inclination, at least for me, is to page through it and just kind of look at cool stuff and read interesting articles. And then you start diving in and you're, and you're like, wait, kids wrote this? Because it's so well done. I mean, it just, it's it's almost like shocking when you hear, when you kind of make that connection. And so I think that that's a really powerful thing for young adults to see and to understand that something like this can be done and it can not only inform the future, but it, it really can leave a legacy. I mean, I imagine the kids who did this in the 70s are some of, you must still be connected to some of them. They must still be very proud of their work they're very much involved. We have a lot who come back for events and volunteer for us and um, a lot who serve as kind of mentors to some of us in the organization when we have questions. And yeah, it's, it's great to have them as resources and to even hear their experiences. Yeah. And the, and the challenging thing for a lot of preservation or historic groups is that, you know, compared to like fundraising when it comes to a school is we don't have alumni, right? But you guys do, in a sense. You actually have an alumni. Um, you have people who have gone through the program and have been impacted by it and remember it. Um, and I think that, that there's there's some value in thinking about that and how we engage young adults. Um, so you, you hinted on this a little bit, but um, the series has what I would describe, I don't know if you would agree with this, but like almost a cultish following. Like people love this book. <laughs> and it was a Bible from what I understand for a lot of like kind of like back to earth folks in the 70s and 80s. And you were kind of talking about that where people were kind of like turning their back on, you know, mass produced things. And there was kind of this return to the earth thing. We see it up at least closer to us, like in West Virginia, a lot of people went out and tried to, you know, set up communes and stuff like that. And, and the Foxfire was something that they used. But what's the interest in the book like nowadays? I mean, you kind of mentioned the fact that, well, during recessions, we get more. And obviously, we're in a recession slash depression, depending on how you define it. Um, and so what What I mean, I, I don't know how you define this. Do you look at it as book sales or whatever? But is the interest in the book just as, just the same as it always was? Yes. I, you know, I don't have enough <laughs> longevity of knowledge to be yeah. able to know what it was like when it first came out because certainly you know we've had millions of copies sold worldwide but that's you know the organization's been around for 50 years so that's a long time to accumulate that kind of interest um and you know we used to have a huge educational arm and that's kind of died back but i think there's still um 
definitely a huge interest in the books. And I think a lot of that interest is being renewed. Um, and it's interesting because I think part of that is generational. And I mean that in the sense that Foxfire is becoming an heirloom. So people will come here and they'll be like, I remember seeing that on my grandparents' shelf, or I grew up with my dad reading this to me and teaching me things from it. So it's become, you know, almost this family artifact. And so we have these new generations of people discovering it um, as adults in a new way from their memories. And then I think we're also engaging um, more of that younger population from probably like 20s to mid late 30s that are becoming more interested in the skills that are available um, and the knowledge that are that's available in the books. So I do think that there is, you know, a growing maybe renewal of interest in Foxfire in the books um, and hopefully also in what we're doing here at the museum and drawing in new visitors. Right. And you guys have a podcast, so you're, you're reaching out to people and you can find it on iTunes or wherever you download it. Just search for Foxfire. Um, yep. It's called It Still Lives. It Still Lives is the name of the podcast, which is awesome. And people can still buy the book. And where's the best place to pick it up? Uh, you can go to our website, which is www.foxfire.org. That's the best way to support us as an organization. Um, anything you buy in our shop supports our mission as a museum, as well as an educational program for local high school students. But you can also get it on Amazon. Um, they're all available on Amazon. Um, so those are probably the two best places to get the book. Well, I would send people to foxfire.org because we want to support the organization the best we can. And keep in mind, folks, that the holidays are coming and this makes a fantastic, uh, fantastic gift. It's, uh, so this, would, this is a great thing to pick up. Um, let's take a quick break right here. And then when we come back, um, we'll do some rapid fire questions about some of your favorite things from the Foxfire series. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Virginia Hall, a renowned spy and remarkable character, read by Ellie Colmers Cowan, Director of Advocacy at Preservation Maryland. Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall was the most valuable female allied spy of World War II. After graduating from Roland Park Country School, the Baltimore native went off to Radcliffe and Barnard Colleges. She took a secretarial job in 1931 with the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw hoping for a career in the State Department. But a hunting accident in Turkey caused the loss of a part of her left leg and with it, her hopes of a State Department post. Instead, she would become the most heroic female spy of the war, described as the heartbeat of the French resistance. Working for both the US and Great Britain, she established resistance networks, located drop zones for money and weapons, and helped to get downed pilots to safety. Posing as a reporter, she was the first female operative for British Special Operations and spent 15 months coordinating efforts for the Free French Forces. 
the Nazi secret police distributed a poster with a sketch of a woman they called the Limping Lady that read that she is the most dangerous of all Allied spies. We must find and destroy her. She escaped by walking over the Pyrenees Mountains to Spain. As her guide led her across the frozen landscape, she transmitted a message to London headquarters saying she was having trouble with Cuthbert. The reply came, if Cuthbert troublesome, eliminate him. What London did not know was that Cuthbert was only her nickname for her wooden leg. She joined the American OSS, a precursor to the CIA that sent her back into France in 1944, disguised as an old peasant woman. Virginia Hall armed and trained three battalions of French resistance fighters for sabotage missions against retreating German soldiers. In her final report to headquarters, Hall stated that her team had destroyed four bridges, derailed freight trains, severed a key rail line in multiple places, and downed telephone lines. They were also credited with killing some 150 Nazis and capturing 500 more. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we're joined by Tammy Ahrens, uh, the Assistant Curator and Educational Outreach Coordinator at the Foxfire Museum. And we are so thrilled to be talking about all things Foxfire and really the amazing work that they've done over generations to engage young adults and in the story of the Southern Appalachians and documenting that. Um, and before we took our break, we said we were going to do some some rapid fire questions here. So these, are, I'm sure these will be tough because it's sort of like you know picking your favorite child. But favorite book from the series? Uh, from the anthology? Yeah. It's have to be well, I, no, I guess, no, it could be a supplementary. I guess, you know, okay. favorite book it's, that you guys have published. It's book eight or the cookbook. Book it's a tie. Eight. Okay. What is book eight? Tell, tell people about book, book eight. Book eight um, features a really great project that was done um, in the 80s, I believe, by Lynn Butler. And she went out into the Black community and collected narratives um, from like hundred year old women. <laughs> so um, they had some really amazing stories about slavery in the mountains, mm -hmm. which is something that's very rarely captured. Um, and so those were passed down through their families and then shared with Lynn um, and published in the Foxfire book. So just really moving stories. And my two favorite contacts, Anna Tutt and Carrie Stewart are featured in that section. And then the second half of it is pottery, folk pottery. Folk pottery. Okay. Well, I'm, I am I can dig it. I'm into it. There's some folk pottery in my office right now. Yeah, it's really awesome. They have amazing images. Okay. I like that. So uh, maybe a follow-up to that. And you kind of have touched on this, but a favorite article from, from Foxfire. Like what is something that really speaks to you? Outside of those books, my probably other favorite article is on Maud Shope who was interviewed in the seventies and Maud was a woman who lived alone and she rode her mule Frank everywhere. <laughs> um, and she just, she was a really different type of woman and her interview is just really, I don't know. It just really speaks to me because she's just so forthright mm -hmm. in a way that some of the other people weren't. And she just wasn't afraid to hold back and um, just very, very powerful woman. Yeah, I have to say that the the oral histories, and I don't know how this came across or why it is this way, but they they're very emotional. They're very evocative in a way that some oral histories can be very dry. So they really did capture it, and they captured it in such a way 
that, and I promise this is not just an entire episode of me gushing about Foxfire, but they they capture them in such a way that they don't make them cartoons. Do you know what I mean? Like, it would be very easy to make them cartoonish or to be like, oh, look at these silly Appalachian folk, you know? And they capture them in such a way that you do get a sense for the way that they spoke, but you also get a sense for what serious, kind, tough people these were. And and they're not caricatures of themselves. So I, I don't know no. how they did that, but they did it well. They're very authentic representations. And I actually have to catch myself sometimes because I, I forget that I don't know these people. You know, right. <laughs> spend so much time with their oral histories and their images and basically going through their lives for interpretation. Um, you just forget that you've never met these people and unfortunately never will, but they, um, there's just an honesty and an authenticity that's preserved in the books. That's really moving. Yeah. So, um, I guess you, you, you mentioned that one of your favorite books is the cookbook. So this is a good question. Favorite distinctly Appalachian dish. Oh man, that one's hard because I am a food person like through and through. Okay. You can name <laughs> um, so a couple if you're just, you're okay. in love with them. Yeah. Go for it. Well, it's not my favorite. I didn't really care for it, but I will say the most distinct Appalachian dish I've had is red eye gravy, which is gravy made from coffee, flour, and bacon fat. Oh. Yeah. That sounds definitely different. Um, it's called red eye gravy, and you usually eat it on fried ham with biscuits. Um, my favorite flavors of Appalachia are probably anything with sorghum. I just I love sorghum. It's such a great molasses flavor but it's more mild than like dark molasses um sochan and other wild greens that we can harvest here in the spring are really delicious and salads um and you know you just you can't go wrong with a good old pie <laughs> or a loaf of cornbread so it's all good it's that's, all delicious and the, the cookbook is is something people can pick up and that's a great one to get started in all of this if they're people are interested in in sort of returning to to a, a different style of cooking or trying things out. Um, or if you want to make red eye gravy and keep your family awake uh, all night. Yeah, and no wood stove required. No wood stove. Although if you want to try that out, you're welcome to it, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Everything is better on a wood stove, I promise. So um, this is mentioned in your bio, but what are you researching currently? I mean, obviously you research a lot, but I know you're, you're focused on something right now and you've got a book that you're working on. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this book. Um, we are featuring 20 women from our, like I said, over 2,000 oral histories. So this was a difficult choice to make, um, but it'll have 20 different narratives and it's focusing specifically on women and their experiences over time, um, looking at their connection to place, their identity as women, um, and just what they have to teach us. So the book will hopefully be arranged in a way that um, you know, the interviews really stand out. There won't be a lot of heavy other interpretation or analysis. Um, it should feel like sitting down with an aunt or a grandmother or a mother and just listening to their stories, their childhood, the advice they have to offer us. Um, but really spacing them out over time so we can kind of see this arc of identity as an Appalachian woman. Um, but it definitely should make a great read for anybody, not just women of Appalachia. And this is coming out in 2022? Yes, that's that's what it's slated for publication. So it'll be a while before it's out. But in the meantime, we did just release a book in April called Foxfire Story that features folklore and folk tales from the region. Um, and then again, the cookbook is a recent republication. Um, so you can definitely indulge in both of those until this book is available. 
Well, this sounds awesome. And is, is Maud in her mule in your book? I believe she is. Yeah, I think she's gonna make it in there. She's gonna make it, yeah, I don't know how. I don't know how you could cut her out. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, are you guys? I think I saw on your website that you are open now under COVID. I mean, if people are listening and they're in the area, they can visit. And once we're all back to 100% health again, obviously, visiting is a great thing. Where are you guys? I don't know if we actually mentioned this. Where are you actually located when you look at like the state of Georgia? We are in the very, very far northeast corner. So we are 15 minutes from the South Carolina border and 15 minutes from the North Carolina border. But we're only about two hours like directly north of Atlanta. So we're in Mountain City, Georgia. Raven County is beautiful. Um, We're very fortunate that we have um, 20 historic buildings spread over about eight acres. So there's ample room for people to spread out and social distance. And we do stagger groups and ask that people wear masks inside the buildings. Um, So we've been able to open safely, luckily. Um, But yeah, it's a beautiful day trip out here and a a nice little area too to explore other things in the town. Well, that is is super exciting. And obviously you mentioned that people can find you at foxfire.org. And that's where we're instructing them to buy all of their holiday presents so yes. that is that is um, you know normally Preservation Maryland, which powers PreserveCast, um, and PreserveCast come up with a um, a holiday gift guide. So I, I have a, a suspicion that Foxfire is going to be on the top of that gift guide this year. Great, thank um, you. Yeah, and and we hope that um, maybe make you promise this that you'll come back once your book is published, and we can talk about that as well. I would love to. That would be wonderful. So um, before we go, toughest question your favorite historic place or site, and we'll let you go beyond the Foxfire Museum. Oh, man, that's such a difficult question as someone who's been touring since I was a kid, you know, historic places. Um, One of the most, uh, I guess, interesting, powerful experiences I had was when I visited Mays Howe, which is a Neolithic tomb in the Orkneys. Um, The construction of it was just incredible, and they actually allow you to go inside the tomb Um, which was a pretty powerful experience, especially since I was studying archaeology at the time. And so I had actually done a paper about these very tombs. Um, But another place that's really close to my heart is the Missouri History Museum. Um, It was really formative in shaping my career choices. And I just think that they are a really great model for how a museum can connect with a community. They also have some really great team programming, which is awesome to see them getting involved with local people. Um, and they just do a really great job with exhibits and everything. So it's pretty close to my heart and I'm a little bit biased there as a St. Louis native. <laughs> well, I think those are two very good examples of your diverse interests, right? All across the <laughs> globe. Um, so, um, Cammie, this has been so much fun to talk with you um, and so excited about the great work that you guys are doing. And so pleased to know that someone with your level of passion is there um, carrying on the the torch or the, or the bioluminescence of uh, Foxfire. Um, and uh, look forward to talking with you soon when your book comes out. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. 
PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.